Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and theology from a different angle. Today with me is Don Van Zant. Don grew up in the holiness movement, and he's going to ask the question everybody wants to know. Uh, what's up with the long hair and dresses, right? Um, so anyways, welcome everyone. Don, thanks for being here, bud. Yeah, Caleb, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Excited to to be here. And yes, definitely, we can talk about the hair, the dresses, whatever, whatever's on the agenda. Well, it's one of those questions. A, it's the, it, to me, it's like one of the least interesting ones, but it's the thing everybody notices. Like if Mormons were walking around, people tend to ask them, do you wear magic underwear or why is everybody dressed the same? What's up with the white shirts and that? So... Before we get to that question, tell me kind of like, did you grow up in the holiness movement? How did you understand the holiness movement? What is it for people who might not even know what we're talking about? What do you see the holiness movement or denomination as? Sure. So before I get into maybe my own personal history, um, just to give a broad sort of overview of what the holiness movement is, um, they were they were birthed sort of out of the um, probably the second great awakening era, uh, the restoration movement. Now, not necessarily what the church of Christ was, but the rise of fundamentalism through the earliest early 20th century. Um, you had, you know, Charles Finney, DL Moody, R.A. Torrey, um, a lot, and a lot of other lesser known theologians, but there was always this strong, super strong emphasis on separation from the world literal interpretation of scripture. And um, it was sort of a counterculture movement of its day and its time. Um, so with sort of the rise of Darwinism, of theories of evolution, there was a, a pocket of Christianity that really, really wanted to be against that perspective. And out of that arose the fundamentalist perspective. Now, <laughs> it, it gets real complicated real quickly. Because you have these various branches of um, fundamentalism and the holiness movements, movements plural, so not just a singular holiness movement. There are several of them, um, but they, they're really rooted into Wesleyan holiness theology, a lot of Keswick theology. Um, and there was always this emphasis on separation, outward, external holiness. That is such a uh, driving factor. With, with all of the various holiness movements. So you've got my group that was the Pentecostal holiness movement, not to be, not to be confused with the Pentecostal holiness denomination. They are different. Okay. There's, there's two, just two separate distinctions yeah, to be made that. there. There's the Pentecostal holiness movement and the Pentecostal holiness denomination are different. Absolutely. Not the yeah. same, okay. not the same at all. Um, yeah. So if you, if you're ever driving down the road and you see a Pentecostal holiness church, that's not what I came from. Um, uh, that would likely be the denomination, but so you did have the Pentecostal holiness movement, um, the Pentecostal holiness denomination, you had the apostolic movement, um, which is sort of the UPC, the UPCI, uh, the conservatives, conservative holiness movement that really holds to the Wesleyan tradition and theologies. Um, but our side was a mixture. So they would take elements of Wesleyan theology, but they would mix in um, a strong element of Pentecostal teachings and theology, um, which really makes it hard to follow their history, mm. hard to track them down. Who were they, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're out there. They're just, they're a hard group to really kind of try to track down. So some of the things that might kind of define them, especially maybe the Pentecostal side you talk about the separation when you when you mean separation you're saying like almost almost like a commune type atmosphere where we hang out with each other we work uh as close together as we can like all the free time and family time is spent with other people who have the exact same viewpoint as you do and doing everything possible to not look dress or even enjoy the entertainment that maybe the rest of the world might enjoy. So is, is that kind of a fair assessment? Oh, that's, yeah, that's almost 100% accurate. Maybe not necessarily the communal living. So it's, it's, well, yeah, yeah. People yeah. do tend to think of, yeah, they, they, they tend to associate the holiness movements with a cult, right? Uh, that, that conversation comes up all the time. 
Um, so they, they don't hold to a communal style of living, but the rest of what you said, spot on. Yeah. And you're essentially, um, you're, you're, you're encouraged to develop holiness, relationships, friendships. Um, there, there are a lot of holiness schools. Um, if not a holiness school, then many parents choose to homeschool and that's, that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not anti homeschool. Uh, but yeah, it's very much within our framework of, of thought, within our worldview. They want you to stay. They want you to stay a part of their group. Um, and there's some benefit to that. Like I get, I get the underlying perspective that it, it comes from a good place. They want to please God. And I respect that. I respect anybody that says, I want to please God. The, the, the issues though quickly arise, um, with the nuance of how that all plays out because we are commanded by Christ to essentially go out into the world to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to deal with those that don't hold our perspective. That's where it gets a little dicey, you know? Yeah. That was kind of like the, the question that popped into my mind is if there's so much separation, which I think we can understand to some degree, it's, it's tempting as the world gets crazier, I don't want my kids in certain schools under certain teachers learning certain things. I, I, I understand the desire with, to withdraw, but it's not what I see happening in the Gospels. I see them going out. Instead of retreating from the world, there's some sense where we should have victory over the world and should be like combating it. You don't, you don't win any battles by just hunkering down and, well, we're just going to stay in the basement till the battle's over. Um, so how does evangelism is there any evangelism in the holiness movement or is it just kind of like you, you marry into it and they just going to have a bunch of kids and that's <laughs> how they grow? So, yeah, well, somewhat it, it does function that way. Somewhat they, they strongly encourage. So take dating relationships, for example, um, they, they encourage dating relationships only within um, holiness kids. So, Let's say, for example, my my son were to to decide he's he's in the Holiness Church and he were to decide to uh, date a girl that was from another denomination, Methodist, Assembly of God, um, Baptist, whatever. That would be strongly, strongly discouraged because they want it to stay sort of within the group. They they want you to marry within the group to carry on that that lineage. Um, now, <laughs> evangelism. You mentioned evangelism. Okay, it that is such a tough one. Because there is at the heart of the holiness church, there's an evangelistic thought. They want to go and be an influence in the world. Problem is when you're so separated that you you can't you can't really make that happen. You know, you can't go out there, you can't go into the world if you're not out in the world, right? Um so what one thing that we did coming up was we would go and sort of do the the door knocking visitation, go make the rounds in our neighborhoods or in apartment complexes or wherever it might be, invite, invite folks to church. And I'm not, I'm not against that approach. Not at all. But I think that personal evangelism, there are much more effective ways, you know, to do that. And that doesn't, that, that crosses all denominational lines. There are better ways of doing that. But again, because there's so much separation, <laughs> so much separation that exists there, it's hard to go out and make those friendships for one. Um, you're not there, but for two people kind of think you're odd. You know, they're like, you're the weird guy. I don't want to go to your church, you know? And if somebody was to say, convert to Christianity from holiness, um, evangelism, are they going to say, Hey, now that you're a Christian, you also need to immediately kind of be doing these things. Like if you come to the church and you're not dressed the way we're dressed or, accept all the other things that we accept. Is that person going to continue to feel welcome or is there going to be like a strong pressure to kind of conform into the other ideologies that the holiness movement might have? That probably would vary uh, church to church. And you would hope to land in a church with wise leadership that would not pull people aside and say, look, here's this list of rules. Do these or you can't come here. <clears throat> you would hope that would be the the, the case. Now, does that always play out? No. There was one 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 time in particular that I remember as a kid. We had a young lady that was interested in joining our church, wanted to hang out. There was a whole group of teenagers in our church at the time, and this other young lady wanted to be a part of us. We're like, cool. So um, she came to our church one night. We had this big Pentecostal service, you know, 
which we, we, we can definitely talk about that. <laughs> um, but we had a big Pentecostal style service. This girl comes down to the altar. She prays. She, you know, accepts Christ. We're thankful. We're rejoicing with her. And shortly thereafter, oh, I was so frustrated. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, one of the young ladies pulls her to the side and says, all right, we're glad that this happened. Now, and they, they name off all of the rules. You can't do all of these things anymore because you're a part of the holiness church. The girl never came back, never, never showed back up again after that, that night. So like I said, a wise leadership would prevent that, but people just, people are people. And that does happen more often than not. You, you talk about the leadership and from my understanding of, uh, some of my interaction is less holiness, but more of like the apostolic churches. And there's some similarities there. There are like some connections. Um, Definitely. That leadership has an incredible amount of sway and there are those who probably abuse that and i don't know if it's more likely than not but i think if um people are endowed with that much power it, it tends to go in a negative way where you were talking about dating so say for example um if you had a kid in the holiness movement that wanted to marry somebody outside of it the pressure would be so strong and the social condemnation would be so strong on that person. Either that person would go along with what the leadership says or be forced out. Is mm -hmm. that, is that a fair assessment? Did you see anything like that where the leadership is like, Hey, in many ways, this is our preference, but because we are chosen and we are the leaders that you have to obey. And so women, your hair has to look like this or your clothes have to be like this. And if not, you're disobedient. So I saw that happen probably more times than I can count. You use the dating example. Um, I was talking to somebody just recently that they they wanted to get married. Now, now this person, mind you, has been married probably 20 years, but they were telling me their story of when they wanted to get married. They wanted to marry somebody that was outside of the holiness church, outside of the movement. And essentially, the pastor talked to Maybe the uh, the man and the woman separately, it could have been together. I don't remember exactly how the conversation played out, but he told them, I understand that one of you goes to a holiness church, the other one doesn't go to a holiness church. Didn't challenge their faith at all. Like it wasn't about whether they are a believer or not. That was never in question, um, but it was about the denomination itself. The pastor refused to even perform the wedding ceremony said, no, I'm not going to do this simply because you don't want to get married inside of a holiness church and also because you don't want to marry a holiness person. And, and it sounds real negative. It sounds real negative to say all of those things, but it is a reality. You know, um, it's, it's a reality that I think that those that are in the movement still to this day, they need to contend with that reality, see how they want to feel about it, because there's a strong tendency to deny Oh, we never did that. That's not who we are. Yeah. Um, but it is a reality. You know, I literally had a conversation a few months ago with somebody who dealt with that, that very situation. It does. It sadly, sadly, it does happen. Now you were from Bristow, Oklahoma, where mm -hmm. I was a youth pastor at for seven years. And that's one of the ways th that we know each other. And I had much more interaction with anybody in the holiness group there which was very, very little for kind of the reasons that you mentioned, that there's, there's a separation. So uh, they wouldn't like come and visit my church just for some event or if we were doing some – they, they weren't coming to me. But I had right. students that worked at a local pizza place, and I would ask about it because they would come in in just these large, large groups and take up half the restaurant. And I say, oh, that's great. Do they take good care of you? And they always said they are the worst tippers of anybody we ever had. And I always thought that was kind of funny because it's like, we're different. We, we dress different and we are more faithful, but yet we're really stingy when it comes to tipping. <laughs> and is that, is, I, I always wondered, is that because there was like this superiority complex where they would look down on people, like maybe a waitress had a tattoo or, um, dressed a little bit differently and they would almost be like, Oh, I can't believe they are this. We're more holy. We're closer to God. Is there, is there an ego that can come along with all of these rules? Oh, for sure. 
Absolutely. Now, <laughs> okay, you mentioned the, the, the Bristow Pizza Place. I was probably one of those holiness kids that came in there and tipped poorly, so <laughs> it was probably me. Um, but I can that's say this from experience. That's why I brought experience. it up. They, if, they said your name. Yeah, that's why I had to bring it up. They yeah, right. They probably hate that kidding. guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so probably uh, what would happen or what would happen in those scenarios would be Late at night on a Saturday, we did have Saturday night services at my church. It wasn't a Sabbath thing. It was just we had Saturday night service. Um, we would come after service on Saturday night into town and kind of invade the the local pizza place right around closing time. Uh, but we never intentionally looked down on the servers from some lofty, self-righteous place. Um, it was probably, if I'm being perfectly honest, just young kids being loud, being rowdy, being negligent. Um, it should have done better. Like I'm not, I'm not negating that responsibility. So in that one specific instance, probably just, just kids being kids. But to, to, to take what you just said to, to the next level, you, you are exactly right. Because I know coming up through the Holiness Church that maybe not at the pizza place, but I would just go throughout my day and I mind, mind you, I was holding all of these holiness standards at the time. So long jeans everywhere that I went, no matter what time of year. So it's it's what, July the 27th? Is that what today? 29th? 29th uh, yeah. yeah, so it's the end of July. It's super hot outside. Uh, it would be long jeans, long sleeves, um, no no facial hair. And you would hold these standards so high. And that would, that would be just for the men. Uh, the women had so many more rules that they had to hold, but we felt like, we felt like because we held these standards, that it did make us more holy, that it did sort of separate us. And there was an ego built into that. I remember being a younger person through my teens and twenties that I would see people professing Christians. So I'll use you, for example. Um, I would see a guy like yourself and I'm like, Oh, I see Caleb. He, he claims to be a pastor. He claims to be a Christian. He claims to know the Bible. But there was always this condescension that you would look down on people because, well, Caleb doesn't hold the holiness standard. You know, he doesn't live all of these rules. So, yeah, I don't think I can really trust the guy. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody had some ink, that was a big deal. Um, so you would look down on anybody outside of the movement, and it wasn't about their walk with God. It was about the external standard, where they held the standard or not. Not only did you think they were not saved, you thought you were so much better than them. You know, I think almost every denomination has some kind of standard. So we, I mean, I would hold my people to um, a standard of holiness, right, in our, in our bylaws and in order to become a member. We kind of go through what we think the biblical expectation is, um, including conduct, like, you know, your speech should be uplifting and that there's bitterness and strife, but we don't have any clothing kind of like this is what you need to look like. We tend to try to focus more on the, the character, the inside, and know that it will gradually change to the outside instead of trying to change the outside and, and hope that it will affect the inside. But even when I was growing up in a Baptist church, if somebody had tattoos like I do now, and when I first started getting tattoos, what's interesting was when I was a, a lost person, I had very few and they were all hidden. And then when I became a youth pastor, that's when I really started getting more tattoos. And once I got a few visible ones, I was like, all right, I'm visible. I can. But if I go preach at a old Baptist church, uh, if somebody invites me, and it's been a while, but I was invited to do a revival at some old Baptist church outside in the country, and I knew it was going to be mostly older, mostly farmers, so I wore long sleeves uh, just to cover up my tattoos because sure. I didn't want the way I look to get in the way of the message. Uh, but once I kind of could feel out the church a little bit while preaching, I rolled my sleeves up, and nobody batted an eye. But it used to be when I was younger, that was an issue, like— because tattoos oh, yeah. were only for whores and pirates, right? <laughs> Nobody else had those. Um, but it has changed so much where now it's almost you, – you can't be a pastor of a young, vibrant church unless you have tattoos. And so now it's, it's, totally, it's totally switched places. It's like, man, what do I have to do now? Tattoo my face <laughs> to, like, look rebellious or whatever? But 
Um, I think every denomination has its standards to some degree, but it seemed like the holiness just took it to a whole nother mm-hmm. level. So we joked at the beginning about the long hair and the dresses. Explain to us, what was the biblical justification to make a man in Oklahoma wear jeans and a long shirt when it was it was 108 degrees two mm-hmm. days ago? What is the biblical what what verse goes to that one? Okay, so the 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 distinction that they they draw from comes from the Old Testament. Um, the I think it's Deuteronomy twenty two five. It's Deuteronomy twenty two five or twenty two nine. I'd have to go look it back up again to make sure. Anyhow, the the Old Testament uh, law is that it's a shame for a man to put on a woman's garment. It's a shame for a woman to put on a man's garment. And if they do, then it's an abomination. Um, and I agree with that, you know, uh, but in, in the, in the nuance of it, they, they took that to say, well, here's what this verse says. Now, what we've interpreted that verse to mean as the only women's garment that exists is an open hemmed garment, a dress or a robe or whatever that may be. And the only type of a men's garment that exists is something akin to a pair of pants. Um, and that's it. If you step across those lines one way or the other, you have violated Deuteronomy 22.5. And not only is, is that a transgression, but you, you, you can lose your salvation over that. That if like I, I, I specifically remember, I tell this story often because um, I, st- I still see picture of the service in my mind and hear the preacher's voice every time I think of this verse. I remember specifically sitting in a holiness service and a very, very well-known pastor in our ranks was, was preaching, and he made the statement. He said, it is a sin for a woman to wear a pair of pants. Mind you, at that time, I was a holiness youth pastor. I, I agreed with the perspective 100%. But when he made that statement, something inside of me, there was, there was something that said, no, that's not right. That can't be right. I cannot look at a woman and say, if you wear a pair of pants that you're sinning and and as such that you're not saved. I would have to absolutely have to look at every woman that was not a holiness woman and consider her as lost and away from God. Um, So that that's that's the pants versus skirts argument. Okay. now then there's they would consider the length of things, because let's say, for example, I wear pants, but I want to wear a pair of shorts. Um, well, that then they would go down the modesty track. There would be several verses they could use. I even heard some random verses pulled out of Isaiah that were talking about covering the kneecap um, used to justify their perspective on not wearing shorts. So uh, and I never understood that because many times, you know, men's shorts would be equivalent to the same length as what a woman would wear her her dresses. And I didn't understand that because if somebody's going to be tempted by seeing the legs of another person, I think you would be more tempted by the legs of a woman than by a, by a man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. especially if they wear jeans 90% of the time and there's these pasty white legs. Yeah. Patchy, <laughs> no hair, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it did, it definitely happened. Um, that, that was probably the, the singular most defining, uh, characteristics as far as holding the standards go, um, are the dresses on the women that and the long hair. Um, and did it, did it change from whichever holiness church you're at, whoever is in charge, where some church holiness churches have much stricter ones and look down maybe on your church as going, they are not holy enough? Now, the, the, uh, the pants and skirts issue, no, that was across the board. Um, now, the, the nuance of how that functioned, absolutely. Some churches, uh, some pastors and preachers that I would hear would absolutely preach hellfire if a girl had had a long dress, a long skirt, but if she had a, a slit cut into the skirt to help her to walk. Um, one pastor in particular that I remember preached a sermon, and the whole sermon was centered around uh, a girl that would wear a split in her skirt, and he called it the flash of the flesh over and over and over again if she wore that, wore that split in her skirt. Um, so, yeah, it did depend. Um, but one of the major things that would that would distinguish sort of strict from not so strict would be not so much the pants on the men, but n- things like neckties. So um, in our area, growing up, it wasn't a big deal. If you wanted to wear wear a tie to church, because maybe I should back up a little bit. Almost everybody exclusively they they dress up Sunday best suit tie 
Um, they look nice. And then their wife would wear a very nice dress. So like right now I'm wearing, you know, t-shirt and a watch and a hat. Um, none of that is, is it's allowed, but it's not really uh, preferred. They prefer you to wear a collared shirt with a tie and a pair of slacks almost every service. Um, so some churches, it was okay to wear a necktie. Others, if you would venture onto the more strict side of things, if you wore a necktie, it was a sin. Um, they called it the serpent around the neck. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a thing. And if you, if you showed up to church where, I mean, I feel that way about, I feel that way about ties as well, but it's for a total different, different reason, right? Reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they would preach against the neckties. Um, and I remember one camp meeting in particular, a minister showed up to it and he was known for being a minister that wore neckties everywhere that he went. He showed up, they allowed him to preach in that service, in that camp meeting with a necktie on. And you, you would have thought that this man got up and murdered somebody on stage. It was that big of a deal to them. So yeah, the neckties were definitely one of the holiness standards that was, uh, uh, a mark of whether you were strict or not. Now, I imagine because of such standards, especially like men can't wear women's clothes, that the holiness movement never caught ground in Scotland much, <laughs> where men wear kilts. Like, how how are they going to work away around that one? Like, I just imagine, I, <laughs> can you imagine a holiness pastor going there to do evangelism, his head just exploding as all these men are wearing dresses? So the few um, times that we did actually yeah. raise that as sort of an objection when we were, were having conversations, um, and I tend to agree with this objection, a lot of times you think of a man wearing a kilt, he is no small, weak man. And you probably don't want to confront that guy. So, so I'm like, cool, do you want to wear a kilt? Good on you. If he has a confidence to wear a kilt, he has a confidence to exactly. punch Exactly. So I'm just going to leave him alone. All right. So um, what about theology-wise? Let's talk a little bit about theology and then maybe get out, get into like why you mm -hmm. left or are no longer a, a part of the holiness movement. Would what, what denomination, what kind of church do you go to now? I know your wife actually works at mm -hmm. a Baptist church. Okay. That is yeah. a whole story of itself um, that we, we both attend uh, the church you were actually youth pastor at. Um, we, we, we joined as members. Oh my goodness. March, April, earlier this year. Um, and it was a huge decision, a, a big transition for us to make, uh, going from being a holiness youth pastor to now she is secretary at a Baptist church. And, and I'm just a guy who's there now, which is fantastic for me. Um, I've actually talked to her about this several times throughout the, the 10 years of our marriage. My wife has always kind of stood in the background. She's helped with anything that we needed to do. She's been a part, been active, but she's been sort of in that secondary role, you know? Um, well, now those roles have totally changed for us. She works in ministry. She's involved. She does all of these things. And I'm just kind of back there like, oh, oh, great. You want me to bring you a cup of coffee? You know? Um, so it's, it's, been, it's, been, um, it's been an experience, but it's been a good experience for us because I have watched my wife flourish in her walk with Christ. I've watched her grow in in her depth in the word in ways I have never seen before. And I do honestly believe, now if I have any holiness friends that happen to hear this podcast, I don't mean this as an offense, but I honestly believe and give credit to our leaving the movement, making that choice, that decision to say, we're not going to be here any longer. When we made that choice, when we made that decision, my wife just came alive. And it's been excellent. It's been excellent for us. So yeah, it was it's, it was a journey to get from one point to where we are now. But it's been it's it, it, we're at a good place now. Do you think like do you think she felt maybe unknowingly kind of oppressed by all of the expectations? Because we get frustrated at all the expectations the world puts on a woman. Look this way, act this way. You better be tan. You better be this. And the holiness it was just it's almost just like the same level of expectation maybe even higher just in the mm -hmm. opposite direction you better have pale skin you better you better have long hair you better wear this and it, it instead of trying to be different from the world it's almost as though it's exactly like the world just on the other side of you the spectrum. are and when that is taken away it allows her to be who god you're made absolutely her to be. right we had that conversation many many times that 
in the way that modesty and um, is is not emphasized, the way that women's bodies are objectified in the world. So we all we all see the ads on TV or through the the supermarket or wherever. Women are constantly being objectified in in a very sexual way, and that's sinful and it's wrong. And we would all agree that yes, this is this is a shame, and women should not be objectified in this way. Um, but it is the complete other side of the coin within not just the holiness movement, but, but fundamentalism at large. Women are still objectified. Women are made to feel almost like currency in some way that their men's wives must look a certain way, have a certain length of hair, certain length of dress, um, conduct themselves the, the proper way. And if they don't, then there's, there's, there are consequences to pay. And yes, it very much comes down to a worldly perspective of women. So with my wife, that is exactly what happened. She she began to feel in herself a a change that um, she, not not only in an abstract sense that she didn't agree sort of theologically um, or from a worldview perspective with holiness anymore, but in the practicals, the day to day of her life. You know, she she wanted to wear a wedding band. Um, I remember I, I I when we got engaged, I gave her an engagement ring, and it was it was such an awkward thing because jewelry is another thing that is strongly preached against um inside the holiness church so she would go to work and put that uh, engagement ring on but when she would get in her car to drive to church well she would take it off put it in her car and just leave it in, in the vehicle and it was constantly on and off on and off on and off uh well and then for years after we were married she didn't wear a wedding band but she wanted to um so when we made the the decision say yeah go ahead and, and wear your ring it'll be okay um, she began to feel that way about a lot of the standards. And the more that she let go of those, let me just emphasize, unbiblical standards, um, the unbiblical standards, the more freedom that she began to find in Christ. Um, and I don't just mean to only like double down on my wife's experience, um, but she's the person that's closest to me. She's the one that I know the best. And I've seen this play out in her life that as sure. she's laid aside these standards, the trick, the key for any holiness person that wonders, it's not about just throwing the standard away. It's about replacing that with Christ. And and as I've watched her come closer to Christ, it has taken the place of all of that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's good thing about having standards, but it's it's instead of replacing it with man's idea of trying to, you know, this is what we see happen in the Old Testament, where there's good rules. And because they want you to keep the good rules, they're going to set the boundaries a little bit further away from the actual rules. And we'll just to be really, really safe. We're going to set them really far out just so you don't even get mm -hmm. close to breaking it. But then they become more protective mm -hmm. of that barrier than the actual rule itself. And I, I didn't even think about that, uh, the jewelry aspect. And what I always found funny, I had a friend, I, I don't know if he would call himself a Christian or not, probably not. Um, but when he would come visit me in Bristow, he always goes, where's the holiness girls at? He goes, I love holiness girls. And though their desire was to not be tr looked at or treated that way, he had a thing for long skirts and long hair. And for him, that was what he would look at and go, yeah, that's what I like. And not the girl dressed because everyone he hung out with was already dressed like a <laughs> prostitute. So he'd come here and he'd go, well, that's different than what I normally see. So I like that. And I just always, I was like, the whole point was for them, for you to not look at them that way. He's like, I don't know. Yeah, that does yeah, and, me, and, and kind of um, the, it, the the purpose becomes almost self defeating. Like you said, we don't want to be looked at, but you just can't help it. You see them, um, not not because they're showing their body off, but because of the exact opposite reason. They're so covered that it still draws attention. Um, so, so you mentioned a moment yeah. ago. The, you know, the, the Jewish law and the Torah and, you know, the building of, of rules outside of that. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, and I can't think of the long Hebrew word, but um, within the, uh, is it the Mishnah, I believe, that is their sort of extra set of rules. Um, there's a Hebrew practice that is referred to as building a fence around the Torah. Have you, have you heard of that? Okay, so yeah, yeah. the, the, the. Jewish rabbis teach, here's what the law says. Um, say the Sabbath, you know, it says, don't work on the Sabbath. Uh, well, so they build all of these rules in order to, quote, protect the Sabbath till eventually a person can't pick up sticks 
on the Sabbath, or he can't build a fire on the Sabbath, or you can't ride an escalator on the Sabbath, whatever it may be. Not because those things in and of themselves may be breaking the Sabbath. The riding the escalator may not be breaking the Sabbath, but they want to protect the Torah. And that is the exact thing, two things. One, Jesus dealt with that in the New Testament when he when he pronounces woe on the scribes and on the Pharisees. He, he calls them hypocrites because they teach for commands the traditions of men. Um, but also inside of the holiness church, I've heard it a thousand times. They say, well, I know this isn't in the Bible, but just to be safe, just so that I know that I'm not sinning, I want to go ahead and do this extra thing. Sounds real noble. It's It sounds really good. But what it does is it begins to take and make an attempt, make an attempt at being more holy than God. <laughs> and it's just not the way that that's able to function. Yeah. When I was in Israel, the elevators on the Sabbath are just set to automatic. Like it just goes floor by floor and the doors open and close because it would disappoint God if you wow. press that button. And I was like, man, yeah, y'all have taken this to exactly. a whole nother level here. Um, so would you consider a died in the wool, die hard holiness person a Christian? Or do you think the theology is so different that either it puts them right on the border or outside? Well, of it? first, that's not my decision to make. I, I don't get to get to presuppose on anybody's salvation one way or the other. But since you've asked, um, I, I do believe that the Holiness Church holds to orthodoxy close enough to still say, yes, they, they believe in salvation by grace through faith. Um, you know, they hold to the deity of Christ. They, they hold to the Trinity, or at least the Trinitarian uh, holiness people do. Um, you know, they, they do hold enough orthodoxy to, that, that I would consider them to be my brothers. I don't throw them away. I don't say, no, these people are so far gone that they're not okay. even saved. However, inside of that, I do think there are those that have so either misunderstood or flat out perverted the gospel. Um, Till it, it would really call um, very seriously into question their their belief on Christ by salvation, you know, by grace through faith. I do think there are those that you would have to look at and say, I don't know. I, I don't know that if you really believe in Christ as Savior. There are there. So like in the apostolic church near me, um, they would say that I would need the second baptism of fire to show that I'm actually actually like saved. And without that, mm -hmm. they would consider me lost because I, I haven't received the second fire of baptism, um, which I don't think there's a, a good biblical argument for. In fact, baptism of fire right. is usually judgment, and not in the good kind. So when they asked, do you want to be baptized in fire? I said, no, I want to go to heaven when I die. Um, or is there anything like... Um, because I know there's a lot of holiness that might be oneness Pentecostal. It, is that what you grew up in? We, or we were Trinitarian. Trinitarian. Oneness would deny the Absolutely. Trinity. Okay, so you were Trinitarian. Um, was there baptism is required for salvation, or is it? Is so it the, the way that um, they apart they, they so do no believe in a second baptism, possibly even a third, depending on on it, on who you are following. Um. So they, they believe that a person is baptized into the body of Christ um, at salvation. They emphasize water baptism as a secondary thing that does not relate to salvation. So they do separate the two, and I'm thankful for that. So they don't hold to sort of a, um, a baptismal regeneration perspective. But the, the, the issue comes in with that third perspective of baptism, and that is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, or as I was always taught, taught that you know that Holy Ghost fire baptism. Um, so what what they believe there is that, and I and I, I really want to be fair. I want to be fair in how that I say this because it, it, well, if this sure, gets sure, back no, to, no. they're going to say that I'm straw manning, and I don't want to straw man the argument. Um, they say that a person is saved and receives a portion of uh, the Holy Spirit when they are saved because they're baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. So in some way, the Holy Spirit is active in their life, but they had not been baptized in the Spirit until 
later on in their life. For some, it could be two days. For some, it could be 20 or 30 years. It just depends person to person. But they have not received the Holy Spirit until they have spoken with tongues. Um, then through that initial sign evidence, they've received the Holy Spirit. Obviously, they take that from Acts chapter 2, um, when, the, when the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. And, uh, you know, they speak with tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. Um, so a person doesn't have, they're not, quote, Holy Ghost filled until they've spoken with tongues. That is the, I think, overriding Pentecostal perspective, but I know that's the perspective that I was taught um, sort of sort of coming up. Even, and that's, that in many ways is very common. Like, and that's what I, I always struggled with. Like, so you're saying, hey, I understand the, the Holy Spirit is personified, that it is a, a person. And are you saying I only got his arm and his leg and I get the other arm and a leg when... I get the second one. Um, scripture says there's one baptism. Um, and I've, though I'm not a cessationist, I, I believe in the gifts of the spirit. Um, I, I trace back and I did this, this long journey mm -hmm. of tracing back the history of tongues. Um, and, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a 19th century thing. It doesn't exist anywhere in the early church. It doesn't exist anywhere outside of that. It's kind of a, a modern day thing outside of Acts second chapter. In fact, the Holy Ghost actually shows up before Acts second chapter and a lot of people right. um, get that confused. But I always wondered well, why just the tongues? Because when the Holy Spirit showed up, tongues was one aspect. But remember, mm -hmm. there's three things that happen. There is the tongue of fire that looks like fire above their heads. And then there's a mighty wind. And then they begin to speak in tongues. And so I've always been curious, why did you just pick one when all three are said to go together? And what's interesting is when you look at when uh, a temple was initiated in the Old Testament, you would have those signs as the... Mm -hmm. uh, kind of like a seal of approval on the building of a temple. There would be the rushing of a loud wind. There might be tongues of fire. There would be some of those aspects of it. And I always understood Acts, the second chapter, as just a sure. reversal of Babylon. So, so the Tower of Babel, where the languages are separated, well, we're going, we're trying to go back to the garden. And, you know, the veil was torn so that we can have a relationship with God again. So, the, the Tower of Babel is a separation of languages, and then Jesus initiates the the coming together of all languages again through the Holy Spirit. In the same way that the Tower mm -hmm. of Babel is like a one-time event, I don't see churches, churches that would say tongues are required as evidence of salvation. I never see it practiced in even a biblical way where the Bible is very clear. One at a time must be interpreted. Did you guys speak in tongues all together? Or was it one at a time and then immediately interpreted? And if it wasn't interpreted, that person would say, so hey, you're the, just the making So the thing that was emphasized coming up through the uh, the Pentecostal church was, first of all, 1 Corinthians 14 was all but ignored. I never, in all of my years, 20-plus yeah. years mm -hmm. in the group, never one time heard um, anybody try to exegete first Corinthians 14. I never heard anybody sit down and say, let's talk through this chapter on tongues. They might mention it in a very cursory way. And then they would just move on. Now they would go to first Corinthians 12. They loved first Corinthians 12. I love first Corinthians 12, right? It's a powerful chapter. Um, but they didn't want to take that to its, to its end. So <clears throat> just on, on a, on a personal note, again, this is, this was sort of the, well, there were several, benchmark moments along the way. But one of those for me with my sort of um, exit from holiness was while I was still a youth pastor and mind you, 1000% Pentecostal. Matter of fact, one of my, one of my buzzword sayings when I would preach to congregations, I would always tell them, just so you know, the first church was a Pentecostal church. <laughs> um, so I was, I, I was all in. Well, <clears throat> I would teach, Right, preach is good, good doesn't it? I mean, that's a good line. <laughs> so, yeah, preach is um, good, right? I, I would teach Sunday school about once per month to the young married, young young adult class. Um, the other three 
Sundays, there was an official teacher. I would fill in once a month. I decided that I was going to do um, a lesson or maybe a series of lessons on pneumatology, on Pentecostal doctrine, on the spirit. And I knew I needed to start with baptism in the spirit and with evidence of speaking in tongues. So I just, I, I really thought that this was going to be a simple open and close, go to my Bible, read a few verses, and this will prove why we believe that speaking in tongues is the initial sign evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. Open up my Bible, begin to try to read through this. I go to Acts chapter two, and similar to the, to the way you just explained it, I looked at it and thought, huh, you know, that doesn't really work. Like the, the logic, the hermeneutic doesn't really apply um, to the everyday believer. I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Let's just move on to other portions in the book of Acts. Read through the entire book of Acts, and it just didn't work because I realized that what was um, happening in the book of Acts was, was descriptive. It was just describing events as they happened. But the, the narrative that played out wasn't necessarily something that was being prescribed. He wasn't saying this happened so it should happen again. He's just saying, no, this happened. So then I hopped over into 1 Corinthians, went to chapter 14 and thought, huh, I've never really heard anybody talk about this chapter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my research and I'll, I'll develop my doctrine of tongues based off 1 Corinthians 14. Well, by that time, the train was starting to derail. Everything was coming off the tracks. And I knew I needed to go teach my class about the spirit. So I kind of just closed down my whole study, kept it to myself, went back to my Sunday school class and taught them said, look, if you really, really, really want to know what the initial sign of having received the Holy Spirit is, it's right here. Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. I said, it's not tongues. It's if we have actual fruit in our lives. Um, and, you know, they kind of took it in stride. They didn't think anything else about it. But I sat on that for probably a year and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it until finally I realized that I can no longer tell anyone that they don't have the Holy Spirit if they have not spoken in tongues, because that's not biblical. I had to, I had to go away from the doctrine. I used to, I used to really shy away from telling this story because uh, I never wanted it to be like man centered, but just so there's other, other ways of viewing things. When I was doing mission work in Budapest uh, with my dad, my dad was a missionary and, I was lucky enough to travel all over the world with him as a young man. There was a homeless man that I went to go and share the gospel with. And as we started talking, I was waiting for an interpreter to come over. Um, I said what few Hungarian words I knew. And uh, then he responded back in English. And so I was like, oh, great. So I began to just talk English to him back and forth. And we have this long conversation. He comes to be a believer. I pray with him there. And the translator, who was just an earshot away from me, uh, after I was done, she walked over and she said, Caleb, your Hungarian is improved so much so fast. I've never seen anything like it. I said, what do you mean? I said, I only said a few words. She says, no, you, the entire conversation was a perfect Hungarian, like the gospel presentation, everything. She's like, everything was flawless. Everything you said, she's like, it was incredible. I said, no, he speaks English. And she goes, you mean the homeless man over there in Hungary speaks English? I said, yeah. And she had this confused look on her face. So she goes over there and she starts talking wow. to him. And the guy doesn't speak any English. And I'm, I'm confused because I don't I, – I had no – there was no like a rushing wind and I'm <laughs> through the power of the spirit, you know, no, through the power of gray school. Um, there's none of that. It's just just a conversation. And I come to realize he heard the gospel in his language, mm -hmm. Absolutely. which is what Acts second chapter is talking about. We go back the next year and we're in the same market area, very popular called Dayok Terre, very popular market area. And uh, the guy is there, and now he's a church planter. He's no longer homeless. God had saved him out of that. And he's actually like preaching and sharing the gospel and helping to plant churches. God had transformed his life. And so it was supernatural, mm -hmm. but it felt really right. natural because only and God that, got that's... the glory. Only God got the glory. And so people say, yeah, do you believe in tongues? Yeah, I have spoken <laughs> in tongues one time, <laughs> and I didn't know it. And, and when I see, 
when I see any videos of, of the Pentecostal church where everybody is shana na 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 ma ma na ma na. No, I get it. Um, not, not to make fun, right? <laughs> I don't want to be, I, I, I'm a cynical person. So, but mm-hmm. whenever I see that, I go, who's getting right. the glory? Um, and that, to me, that's, that's that? what gets me about uh, the doctrine of, of tongues and how did it become so unbiblical so quickly? For one, Scripture, the Bible, is a real book. It really translates to our lives in an actionable sort of boots-on-the-ground way. You had a conversation with an unbeliever. As far as you knew, he spoke your native language. As far as he knew, you spoke his native language. Now, when I read Acts or uh, 1 Corinthians 14, that's what I see happening there. Paul telling them that tongues are a sign, but a sign for the unbeliever, not for the believer. And that's where the Pentecostals, they literally take that and turn it the other way. They say, no, 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 tongues are a sign for the believer. When Paul makes it very clear, that is not what tongues are for. They are a sign for the unbeliever. But I like what you said about it being just a real thing and and, and almost a quiet thing that happened. I heard a sermon. Uh, uh, I heard a sermon years ago. What? It was a big youth conference. Oh, so mind you, there, there are a lot of preachers there. There are a lot of... Uh, Younger people, aged probably thirteen to twenty-five, and so the, the energy is very high, right? And it's a Pentecostal service, so the energy is is even higher. Um, and the speaker gets up to to speak, and he preaches from Acts chapter two. Now, you mentioned those three elements earlier: the the fire, the wind, and the tongues. And he preaches through Acts chapter two and illustrates his sermon by doing his best to replicate those three elements. At one point, he made, he had a sound that was like a blazing fire playing across the loudspeaker, and everybody is just, you know, they're shook up by, by this fiery sound. At another point, he plays like a tornado sound that comes through for the wind. Everybody is shook up by it. And of course, by the end of it, everybody in the room is just speaking in tongues. Of those three elements, the only one that can be readily replicated easily is for a person to make a vocal sound in in an unintelligible language that that you almost think is what we would refer to as tongues. That's the only one. I can't create fire out of nowhere. I can't make wind come out of nothing. And neither could that guy. So what did he have to do? I can make ah, wind come out of nothing. Right. right. It's not pleasant to be around. <laughs> Sorry. It's right there. I had to. That door was wide um, open. I had to walk right through it. Uh, Don, let's, uh, I want to, I want to hear and kind of wrap up real quick, but I want to hear what was it that pulled you out? Like, why did you leave that behind? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure while you were in it, you loved it. It's your family, it's your friends, it's your community. And you don't stay in something like that for so long unless you love it. But what was it that you go? I I honestly think it it was my love for the people and for the movement that eventually caused me to leave. Um, so on, on the, on the practicals, on the holiness standards, my family and I had decided we just don't believe these anymore. We, we don't think that they're necessary or essential or the majority of them are not biblical at all. And the more that I would voice that, um, be it through my own podcast or with conversations with others or um, in church, whatever it was, the more I would voice that perspective, the more pushback I received. And I, I could see a divide being created between myself and the holiness movement. Um, and so I, I, I had to make a decision that said, I, I can't be a part of this anymore. Um, I started to kind of speak out on a lot of the issues, you know, through my podcast and things. To, to talk about various holiness problems that I had seen, the more that I spoke out, the less they liked it. And finally it came down to a very, uh, very public disagreement between myself and, and another pastor. I'm not even going to act like I handled everything properly because I didn't, you know, and I did my best to own my own failures and say, look, I know I'm not, I haven't done some things the right way. Um, but so in the midst of all that, I, I decided with my wife, well, okay. We before we left, we had a conversation one morning on the way to church, um, kind of talk, talking similar to the way that we're talking right now. And I told my wife something to the effect of where we'll be in the next thirty or forty years 
and made some connection back to the Holiness Church. I don't remember the statement exactly. And she told me, when I hear you say that, I'm filled with a sense of dread. That that was an awakening moment for me. I knew I didn't believe it anymore. I could see the reaction that it was causing in her. And in order to protect her, in order to protect my children, and honestly, for my own mental health and well-being, I knew I had to go. If it were my choosing, my my decision, I would have loved to have stayed. But because of all of the factors that were put into play, my disagreement on issues like tongues, my disagreement with the holiness standards, my disagreement with the sort of authority structure, I knew I couldn't stay. I was never going to succeed there. So we had to make the decision to go. Mm, that's fascinating. I, I really appreciate you telling us your story and my wife had told me long ago, because uh, we even had, I, I look back through my messages on Facebook, and we had a discussion years and years ago uh, on alcohol where we, we had a disagreement. Um, now, was that the, the, the holiness you, or is that still I a view that you hold? I don't even know if you remember the conversation <laughs> at all. Yeah, so. Yeah, okay. I forget. I have, you know, I have these conversations like twice a week so i i forget yeah, so that I that, like, that perspective has definitely like, oh, yeah, changed over that. the years you know um so that was definitely my holiness holiness brain that's what i call it my holiness brain that was speaking at that at that time but it was pretty extreme you know i i held my perspective pretty strongly i see now that you got you've got to give a little bit of room for people oh and also my arguments were horrible <laughs> yeah i say yeah <laughs> I remember you were very respectful and you, you were very polite and stuff. I just, I'm a firm believer. If Absolutely. there's any rule that would keep Jesus from being a part of your church, it's a bad rule. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus had a beard. Jesus drank wine, mm -hmm. right? Not grape juice. And all, all these things, right? He wore a dress. <laughs> you know, so. Not, not to, it's probably more like a kilt. Um, but, uh, well, I love that you have left out a desire to love because you don't want there to be tension. And I know when you started kind of putting out some of your uh, podcasts that there were a lot of really ugly, hateful comments mm -hmm. that, that bitterness of almost like a mm -hmm. sense of betrayal. Like when you were like, but you were one of us, how could you do this to us? Sure. When you're like, how could we do this to the Bible? Right. Because my, my authority is scripture. Well, and I, and you know what somebody says, I, I think about going, God. going forward, I've tried to change podcasts. my strategy a little bit. When I first started speaking out on the issues, I really wanted to help the holiness people. I did. It came from a sincere place. I wanted to help them. I saw these errors and I felt like I could assist in any way, you know, or I wanted to assist in any way that I could. I've amended my strategy. Now I realize they have their perspective. They have their worldview, their approach to scripture, and I'm never going to change a movement that is coast to coast and has thousands and thousands of people in it. I can't, I'm one man. I can't do that. Um, for one, I'm not the Holy Spirit. That's his job to do. My goal now is when I talk to people that that may either be questioning that are still inside of the movement or that have left and are trying to find a landing place. Um, I want to help those people because I've seen so many that, that have left and and have essentially left the faith. And I... I agnostic or yeah they go agnostic don't they yeah they, they some form of them leaves the faith I, I don't even know necessarily how to explain it not necessarily atheistic possibly agnostic but but they depart and i want to i want to try to throw out a safety net for people by the grace of god right i mean i always want to caveat that it's the holy spirit that works my my efforts are vain um but i, I want to try to help anybody that is out there with questions that are wondering you know, what about these holiness standards? What about salvation? What about justification by faith? You know, I want to try to help those people. I realize that the fundamentalist perspective, I will never win, but there are others out there, a small group that, that I might be able to affect. I think just having your information available out there for somebody who's questioning it, that they were to like look up or mm -hmm. research and they could find a resource and they go, I'm not crazy. Because it is when you feel like you've been lied to by the people who are supposed to be giving you God's truth, you associate that with God. And then you go, uh, there's an old quote, some people confuse God with religion and walk away from both. 
And my desire is, is for people not to fall in love with me or my standard or my interpretation, my goal is to help people fall in love with the Bible. And if I do that, then the Bible is what they will go to for questions and their source and their authority, not me or my opinion on how they should dress or who they should marry. Uh, tell us the name of your sure. YouTube channel. Um, you can look me and, up on YouTube. Uh, uh, you just on search Facebook, the Lost Mission like podcast with Don Van Zant um, on Facebook. Just the Lost Mission, um, or just look look me up. Send me a friend request. You know, I, I get friend requests quite a bit. Shoot me a private message. I love to talk about these issues, so um, I may not respond immediately. But if you're out there and you have questions, I may not have the best answers, but I will do my best. You know, to give to give you an answer. So yeah, YouTube. The Lost Mission podcast with Don Van Zant, Facebook, The Lost Mission, or just search Don Van Zant on Facebook. For sure. Don, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great. And we might have to do it again on another topic or something like that later on. You're great to talk to. Thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. Everybody, go check out, subscribe to his YouTube channel. Uh, he's got more subscribers than me, so y'all can subscribe to mine too. Uh, our, our, podcast you know it it has a lot more traction than the youtube channel i had to delete the youtube channel after we had a lot of subscribers due to um a poorly led organization (laughs) that closed my email out (laughs) so i couldn't get my youtube channel back and i was like oh man i had all these people and so we're started over from scratch so you can find dog backwards on youtube if you want to support the channel, you can go to calebmore.tv. Don't donate. Buy a book. I got books I wrote, and you can buy one. Thanks, I Caleb. I appreciate it. Thanks. Don, thank you so much, man. You have a great day.